Hey everyone, some announcements today. Keep in mind that these can change. But firstly, if anyone needs anything during this time, please reach out at uh, our email, governingboard at watermarktampa.com. We would love to help in any way possible. Uh, you can also send prayer requests to us uh, to prayer at watermarktampa.com. Parents, we have We Watermark content on our website that you can check out. Uh, also, we can give still at watermarktampa.com slash give. For any new information, uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Watermark Tampa Church, or check out our site. Uh, some good events happening during the week. Bible for Lunch is every other Tuesday. Uh, during noon time on Tuesday, Tommy talks about different aspects of the Bible. Uh, that's going to be great. And then uh, on Thursdays, every other Thursday, Tommy has a church history for lunch where he's going to go over different events and figures in uh, the early church history. Um, on Wednesdays at 8 p.m., we have a call to prayer event. Um, if you'd like a link to that meeting, you can email us at prayer at watermarktampa.com. All right, love you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Johanna, and I'm one of the elders here at Watermark. Um, we know that this is really a difficult time for a lot of people. Um, whether you're dealing with anxiety, whether you've lost a job, um, if you're ill, if you are just struggling and feeling lonely. There's more ways um, and more needs that need to be met right now than I can like even say in a little message. But we know this is really hard for a lot of people and we really wanna be there for you. Um, so we really wanna hear from you if you need something or if there's a way that we can pray for you, um, please reach out to us. We really um, care about you and we love you all so much. Um, and we really want to tangibly be there for you in any ways that we can. Um, you can email us at elders at watermarktampa.com and um, one of us will get back with you. We really um, are so thankful that you're here and part of our community and um, you mean a lot to us. So grace and peace. Good morning, Watermark. Uh, good to sort of virtually see you all. Uh, our passage this morning comes from uh, Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 8 and we're going to go down to uh, verse, <clears throat> verse 15. So read this with me. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wondrous signs among the people. Opposition rose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up God's people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray, shall we? Father, be with us now as we gather together in whatever way that we can um, to, to hear from you, to gain guidance through difficult times, to understand our role in, uh, in whatever moment you bring us into. I pray that you would give us perspective. 
I pray right now that you would join me here, that you would speak through me, allow me to communicate clearly um, the things that I've learned um, and the things that you have for me to say and the things that you have for all of us to ponder and think about. Be with us through this morning and through this journey. Thank you for this community of people. Bind us together even though we are apart. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Okay. So there are two false accusations being brought against this guy, Stephen. Um, and I didn't necessarily get into it, but Stephen has just been chosen. Um, talked a little bit about this last week, about, about how there was some uh, difficulties in handling how to feed the widows, and there was some um, apparent favoritism that was taking place. But Stephen has been chosen, and, and Stephen here is... Uh, He's gone to a specific group of people that we're going to talk about, and I'm going to explain who they are and, 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 and sort of put some of this in perspective, why they're so upset. Um, but Stephen, uh, in his proclamation of the gospel, have had two accusations raised against him. Some people have risen, risen up against him, uh, had him arrested, and now he's standing trial. And the two accusations are very simple. Speaking against what they call this holy place, that's a reference to the temple uh, where they would be gathering. And second, they accuse him of speaking against Moses. Um, that's a placeholder for the law. So they're upset that he's speaking out against the temple and that he's speaking out against the law, although there's not any record that he really is so far. I mean, it was well known that what, what Jesus had been teaching, that, um, that the time of the, of the law, the time of the, the temple was, was moving on. And it's well known that the early Christians saw the spirit of God inside them as the law, and they saw themselves gathering as the temple. And so a lot of these accusations are probably coming out of here, but they are false accusations. Make no mistake about this. He has not, Stephen has not been speaking out against this. Um, and the interesting thing here is um, how Luke presents these. These are precisely the exact same two accusations that Jesus had leveled against him. Um, these are precisely also the same two accusations that caused the separation between the sect of Judaism called Christianity and, and regular Hebraic Judaism. These are the things that sort of caused the rift and the split in, uh, from Christianity, from Judaism, um, the ways they viewed the law and the ways they viewed the temple. This would eventually become irreconcilable, and they would um, no longer be considered a sect of Judaism eventually. Um, but Luke has fashioned sort of this entire account to in the mind of the reader, take them back to his first book, um, the Gospel of Luke. He is the same author as Acts, as we've established. And he wants their mind to go back to Jesus standing trial before the Sanhedrin. These are the same accusations. These are the same group of people. He's probably standing in the same place. He also wants you to go back a chapter or two to when the other apostles, Peter and John, stood before the Sanhedrin. So we have three separate trials before Sanhedrin. We have Jesus and the false accusations against him. We have, we have Peter and John, the false accusations against them. And then we have also um, Stephen here and the false accusations against him. Now, these are all meant to sort of be, be viewed the same way, but there are subtle differences meant to bring different things into conversation in the mind of the reader, because these books would have been read in community. And then they would have asked, so what does this mean for us in our context? Who are we? Who are we standing trial before? And what are we standing trial for? Okay. Now, Let's talk about who Stephen 
uh, has been brought to trial by. He's been brought to trial by this group um, from what's called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Um, this was the name given to some specific various Greek-speaking synagogues that existed in various parts of the Roman Empire. Most of the synagogues were Hebraic, uh, and they spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, um, some late form of Hebrew. And both of these languages really now are, are, are dead, not really spoken anymore. Greek was the big language. But there were a lot of Jews who did not speak Hebrew and Aramaic. And there's various reasons for this. The main reason for this was um, <clears throat> because of the exile. Um, there were exiled Jews who had been scattered for hundreds of years all over the Roman Empire, some to Babylon, Assyria, different places, and they had not been brought back to Jerusalem after the end of the exile. Um, but at some point, King Herod, the, the half-Jewish king, put in charge over the Jewish people, uh, rebuilds the temple, and this temple that he builds is magnificent. It's massive. It's one of the wonders of the world, and it works like a magnet to draw Jews from all over the world back to the homeland, back to Israel. <clears throat> And it draws all them back like a, like a magnet um, from all over the world. And when the exile took place, it lasted a very long time. It lasted several generations. And a lot of the Jews, after the exile ended, didn't move back to Israel until the temple. They stayed, actually, in different various places. And some of them were actually sold um, into slavery. Some of them ended up in slavery through debts that they had. Um, but a lot of the Jews in exile became slaves and were raised to speak Greek. And so they didn't speak their sort of mother tongue, if you will, um, Hebrew and Aramaic. They spoke Greek. Um, and eventually, you had these different scenarios. Um, <clears throat> one of the more interesting ones is that 59 years before the birth of Jesus, uh, Pompeii, that city that we are now digging up because it was covered in, in the ash of Mount Vesuvius, right? And now it's perfectly preserved a Roman city, Pompeii. Um, Pompeii was actually... Um, wiped out 59 years before the birth of Christ and was rebuilt later. Um, but a lot of these slaves um, that were in Pompeii, these Jewish slaves, were, were, many were taken to Rome. And, and over the generations, as their slaves were freed over the decades, you could buy your freedom, they could, you could become friends, and you could be set free. There's different ways you could gain your freedom. You could serve an allotted amount of years and be set free. Um, and a lot of them, as devout Jews, they wanted to return uh, to the homeland and be as close to Jerusalem and the temple as they could be. Uh, so that one day when they died, they could be buried with their people near the temple. This was a huge dream of theirs. They wanted to return home, but they didn't speak the language. And so obviously these Jews couldn't take part in regular synagogues. Um, they couldn't learn about the scriptures because they didn't speak the language, Hebrew and Aramaic. And so they established what was called the synagogue of the freedmen. So these Jews who had been set free had a place to worship and a place to learn and a place to take part in the things that made them God's people. So as the name suggests, um, right here in, um, in verse 9, it says, opposition arose against Stephen from this group of members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Um, so as the name suggests, uh, this was a, a synagogue built for freed Jewish slaves who spoke Greek. Okay, now... Um, the gospel message, the message that, uh, let's define this real fast in case you haven't been with us for very long, in case you're just tuning in. Um, the gospel is, is simply an ancient proclamation that there is a new king, and it is the story of how this person became king, okay? Um, 
they are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of Herod or the gospel of the emperor of Nero or anybody. They're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, how Jesus became king, resurrection, um, and what this meant for the world. Um, peace on earth, that the, that the kingdom of God is being established here in this world, and that God is gathering now his citizens to establish this worldwide king, kingdom. Um, and this gospel, this message that, that Jesus is the world's true king, it turns out had this profound impact on these synagogues, on these synagogues of the freedmen. And they would eventually be very open to the gospel, but not yet. Uh, eventually, they would be very receptive, and a lot of them would become followers of Jesus as Messiah. Um, as their king. And Paul the Apostle was actually a member of the synagogue of the freedmen as well. Uh, he was raised there, he was trained there, and we will see him uh, under the name Saul in the very next passage, which we will do two weeks from now, after Easter. Um, so I want to talk about how the message in the ancient world of the gospel is received. Um, Stephen and the Apostles are agents of this whole new world sort of world order, right? Like that has a whole new meaning today. But this, this whole new order of the world existing, um, they believe themselves to be citizens of a new kingdom, which was present already, a kingdom whose, whose king is Jesus Christ, uh, whose citizens are all who put their allegiance, the, the Greek word for faith is this word pistis, which we now know literally means allegiance. It's how a king would speak about the allegiance of his followers to him, of, of his kingdom to him. Um, so their king is Jesus. Their citizens are all who have put their allegiance in Jesus. Um, their land is not just Israel. It's the entire world. Their law is not some piece of paper that they follow. It is, it is, uh, it's not a constitution. It, it's the law written on their hearts, the spirit of God within them guiding them every day throughout this world. This is how the, the early Christians existed. This is how they viewed the world, that they were part of a kingdom that would spread and, who's, who's, and their king's kingdom would have no end and would bring about world peace. This is still what I believe today, and this is still what many Christians around the world teach, that God will reconcile the, uh, the existing world to himself and will reign among us. Um, and so we follow no king but Jesus, which is why, like the early apostles, we are oftentimes at odds with earthly kingdoms, okay? And this is what we're gonna talk about here. Um, there are two different scenarios that Luke gives us uh, to understand how the world receives the gospel, how they generally see it when they hear it. Um, the first example has already been given to us. The gospel has been preached in Jerusalem, um, and, and there's these very powerful Jewish leaders of the temple who have joined forces with Roman, the Roman Empire um, to sort of benefit from this and maintain their power over the people. Um, and when the gospel is being preached that Jesus is now king, um, they feel that their power is threatened. And there's this group called the Sanhedrin that feels that their power specifically is, been, has, is threatened. And the Sanhedrin had been controlling the people, taking advantage of the people uh, for generations. And now they understood that this gospel of Jesus that these early Christians were proclaiming is, a, is an absolute threat to their power. This is nothing new. All throughout human history, um, and since that very time, a lot of people throughout history have seen the proclamation of the gospel as a threat to earthly power. Um, at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, he documents this, uh, this song called Mary's Song, uh, which we call the Magnificat. Um, if you've not read it, you should. It's in, uh, it's in Luke chapter 1. Um, it starts around verse 47, I think. And 
this particular song of Mary's is so um, politically subversive uh, that it has been banned uh, many times throughout human history since it was written. Um, it was banned in the 80s uh, in, in different places, a lot of different places in the 80s, in, in Guatemala, in El Salvador, uh, British colonial India, um, Argentina banned it, and the Christians would sing this song. Um, and here's some of the lines from, from Mary's song. It says, uh, starting in verse 50, Luke 150, he ex his mercy extends to those who fear him uh, from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away. And so they would put this, they would put this on their signs and they would march through the streets, the Christians singing the Magnificat. And their signs would have a picture of Mary. And it would say, it would say, he has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away. Uh, that didn't go over well with the powerful and the rich. It, they, would, they would sing about how God is bringing down rulers of the earth and all kinds of things and replacing their rule with his rule. Um, and so there has always been movements to silence the powerful subversive message of the idea that, that Jesus is king, okay? Um, and there has always been the desire to get Christians to buy into other earthly kings. This is one of the ways um, that they have worked, many people throughout history have worked to sort of dilute the gospel and dilute Christianity so it is less powerful, less potent, okay? Um, but it will not work. And in the end, this, that is not what we don't believe this thing can be suppressed. Um, so it is no surprise that the powerful and the wealthy leaders turned against the apostles, okay? That's not surprising that the pushback came against Peter and John when they preached the gospel of Jesus. What is surprising is the pushback Stephen receives. Because when Stephen preaches the gospel, he goes to the synagogue of the freedmen to preach the gospel. These are people who have experienced a hard life. They have been poor. They have been enslaved. Um, they didn't have any power. And their community was based upon this shared pain that they all carried in their history, in their story. Um, slavery and then freedom, identity through shared experience. This is what bound them together. And so they also felt that the gospel of Jesus, much like the gospel of the emperor, was a threat to their existence. They already had already had kings come in and tell them that they were in charge. Um, and so this gets really interesting. Um, Luke wants us to see um, both, um, he wants us to see both responses, the response of the powerful and the response of the oppressed people when they hear the gospel. He wants us to see both because we tend to read stories like this, like Stephen's opposition, and they will, spoiler alert, in the next passage, they're going to rise up and kill Stephen. Um, Luke wants us to see this because we tend to simply read stories in the Bible of pushback against Christianity. We tend to just read it as a battle between good and evil, the Christians being good and everyone else being bad. But that's not what this is. These are faithful people. The synagogue of the freedmen have kept their faith through slavery. They followed Yahweh. They've desired to keep their identity as God's people. Um, but sometimes even a good message from 
the way it described from Stephen in verse eight here is described as a man full of God's grace and power performing great wonders and signs among the people. Um, but sometimes even a good message from a man full of grace and power performing signs and wonders can come in a threatening way to people because of what they've been through. And because of the pain they're carrying, they're incapable of seeing the hope that Stephen is bringing. This is one of those times. Um, Stephen is bringing them a message that actually, in their minds, threatens something good that they have, that they belong to, something they find their identity in, which is the synagogue of the freedmen. Um, and Stephen knows this because he's one of them. He was raised in the synagogue. You can see it. Um, you can see that Stephen knows that this is going to be difficult to receive, the gospel of Jesus. It's not easy to receive. Even today, amongst Americans, the gospel of Jesus is very hard to receive, that there is another king, that there is another kingdom, that there is another way to live, because we love our kingdoms, right? We love them. These are not evil people trying to destroy the message of Jesus. These are scared people uh, who, for the last 400 years, have dealt with other people trying to delete their identity as Jewish people. Um, that's what they've been dealing with, this idea of diluting people's identity. They have been in far off places where they didn't have access to a temple. They didn't have access to sacrifices, to what it meant to be Jewish. They didn't have access to the teachings of the law. Uh, they didn't have ways to honor the covenants that they were in with God. They didn't have even their native tongue. It was erased from them. It was taken from them. This is actually how oppression works. Um, we see this in our own history as well as Americans. Um, one of the most effective ways to consolidate power over a people group is to erase their identity. Uh, and you, you do this by diluting that identity. Um, that was the motivation behind uh, Europeans um, giving their African slaves white names. That's why they did this, because you can dilute their identity and thus relinquish the power that that their old life held over them. Um, that was the motivation behind um, uh, early Americans uh, making Native Americans attend schools that taught them sort of white ways of living, giving them white clothing, um, white understandings of morality and ethics, white ways of living. Um, because again, if you can dilute someone's, dilute someone's identity and separate them from what they have been and what they have known, um, you can maintain power over them. And so this is what was happening with these Jewish people. For 400 years, their identity had been diluted. They had lost their language. They had lost their temple, their religion. And they now had just received it back. And they have a way of worshiping God again. And so they carry this trauma. And this trauma sticks with the people. And it causes them to defend themselves from outside ideas. And so when Stephen brings this idea, this gospel of Jesus, in their eyes, it's, it's a threat. Um, and so they have to silence it. And so they rise up against Stephen, not for power. They're not trying to gain power. This is not the same response that the Sanhedrin had. They're doing this for self-preservation. They're doing this out of fear. And the death of Stephen, if you flip ahead and read the story, the death of Stephen, it is, it is his laying his life down for them that will actually become a catalyst that eventually brings this, the, 
the, the, the members of the synagogue of the freedmen into the church. They will come in droves later. But it will take someone to approach them in a way that knows it could cost him everything. And eventually it does. It took someone to remain faithful and loving to them. He didn't come forceful to them. He understood what this may cost him and what it eventually did cost him. And so the one that they will kill out of fear, uh, out of their attempt to be faithful to God, this is them attempting to be faithful to God. Um, he will actually become a martyr whose face will stay in their minds and will eventually bring them to follow Jesus. They will eventually see the hope that Jesus is bringing them, but only because of the sacrifice of Stephen. Uh, the same Jesus who upon the cross declares, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the same Jesus that they will meet in the face of Peter, uh, Stephen. I keep calling him Peter, Stephen. When Jesus is hanging on this cross and he's calling out to his father saying, they don't understand, they don't understand. This is the attitude that Stephen carries with him. Um, and by the way, this is the first of many, many Christian missionaries who will die at the hands of a people whom they are trying to bring hope to um, and freedom to. This is a result of, of the evils of the world that, that, that have hurt them, that have threatened them, that have starved them, enslaved them, and tried to erase their identity. And the Christian enters in and just like Christ, bears the weight of the sins of other people in order to bring salvation. This is a perfect picture of Christ on the cross. Stephen does this well. And so when Christianity comes, it oftentimes is mistaken for earthly empires with their kings and their armies and their calls to allegiance. They don't fully understand what you're doing, which is why it must be soaked in love and grace and patience and the willingness to sacrifice. We even have contemporary um, models of this. We have Jim Elliott and the, the Alka Indians who slaughtered him and his friends as they came bearing gifts and bearing hope, okay? And what did these men do when they got off the plane and were attacked with spears? I mean, they had guns for hunting, but they did not use them because they understood that this is not how the kingdom of God enters into the world. And so they laid down their lives and eventually these people became their brothers and sisters. They would come to Christ in droves. Um, and here's the, here's the point of all of this. Faith and fear are always on either side of the Christian who has been formed by Christ, who has actually been formed by Christ and who's actually following Christ. Faith and fear exist on either side of you and they will, they always will. There are times when it's easy to have allegiance in Jesus. Uh, in times of plenty, in times of joy, in times of celebration, it's easy to have allegiance in Jesus. But there are times when it's easier to live in fear and the temptation grows to fall back and live by the flesh and, and self-preservation, okay? Times of famine, times of sadness, times of pandemic, uh, times of unknown, um, when you don't know how things are going to pan out. These are times when you lean towards fear. And so Christianity was born in that tight space between faith and fear. Uh, it lives in that space. It has always lived in that space. 
in the Christian life, there's a constant dance between faith and, faith and, and fear. Faith on your, on your right side, trusting that the Spirit of God is leading you forward and trusting that this is the way that we must live. This is the only way to go through. Uh, and then fear on your left side, always tempting you to do ungodly acts, to join in evil and to free yourself, right? And it's the Spirit of God that keeps you in this space between faith and fear, and it keeps it from collapsing. It is the spirit of God as being present with the spirit of God there. Um, and here's the thing. These members of, this, of the, the synagogue of the freedmen up until this point had actually lived by following the spirit of God. They had lived by faith. Um, and it had led them out of slavery again. It's always part of the story. And it had led them into a place where they could worship God again. And now God was leading them to the next place. Um, but here, that space collapsed. And they ended up falling back on fear, just like the Sanhedrin. And what happens is the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, they lie and they deceive and they commit murder. They ended up breaking the laws of God. to maintain their following of God, if you know what I mean, if you understand that. Well, I mean, we see that a lot today. Um, breaking the way God has called for us to live so that they can maintain their religious freedom and rights. Doing evil things to protect their faith, which means you have not protected your faith at all. You have killed it. And they do this because they're scared. And so a sense, the reader of the first century would, would be understanding and would, be, would have this sense of like empathy and compassion on these people and pain as they watch them do what they're about to do, which is to kill Stephen. And as they lie and as they deceive and as they plot, they become the evil that they had always fought against. And then Acts 6.15 um, as they are plotting and destroying, we read in Acts 6.15, and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, they looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Some of your translations, if you're reading something different, will say, his face shined like an angel. Part of being a Christian is shutting your mouth and letting your face shine sometimes. Letting them see the love on your face for them trying to be graceful with those who have hurt you. Um, the opposition that you face as a Christian trying to live in the kingdom of God will not always be an act of evil. Sometimes it will be an act of self-preservation. You have to understand that. Sometimes it will be a result of trauma that people have been through. You have to try to understand that. The opposition that you're facing may actually be because they are scared. Because what you are calling them to is a new identity. Because God always starts with identity. And identity is what we tend to hold on to so tightly. And so we must be patient with people. And we must understand that sometimes people do evil things because they are scared. And that doesn't make them right. But it should make us more gracious. It should make us more loving. It should not make us angry. It should make us merciful. 
Stephen will die not hating these people. He will die loving them. And like Christ, he will allow himself to be broken and poured out for their salvation. He is the perfect model of Christ here. As if he is saying, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And eventually, the blood of the martyr would water their faith and it would feed it. And their faith would grow. That's a reference to Tertullian, right? Um, and so right now, I would like us to remember the blood poured out for us as well. If you have your communion elements, please, please gather them together. There are two. Um, <clears throat> there's the body of Christ um, broken for you, for your healing, for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, Christ sees it, and he is welcoming you to come and taste and see the forgiveness that he's offering for you. And then there is the blood, which was poured out for all of us. We do this to remember Jesus in all moments of life, whenever we come together, in real life or online. Um, we come and we recognize the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ poured out for us. Um, and, we, and we dip it and we eat it to take it inside of ourselves. Um, and we ask that the gospel would touch the different places that we have not allowed it yet to touch. All those places that we need to repent of. And so right now, um, let us remember, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ poured out for you, for your healing, for the forgiveness of your sins, for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, be with us. Guide us. Help us to understand that opposition will come to your kingdom, not always by those seeking power and prestige and wealth and money and evil uh, motives, but oftentimes by those who have suffered, those who have been traumatized, those who are trying to preserve their own hearts and minds. I pray that they would, first off, that they would come to see that we have not come um, bearing laws and bearing demands. That we have come bearing uh, love. That we have come not asking them to pour themselves out, but we have come to pour ourselves out. I also pray that we would look upon them with compassion and love, knowing that someone took the time with us to bring us into the family of Christ and that we should do the same. Let us be merciful. Let us be forgiving. Let us be gracious. And all these things we pray. Amen. Now let us uh, end our time together by praying our, our collect prayer together. Pray this with me. Oh God, Lifter of the lowly, our healer, be with us in our isolation. Bring connection where there is disconnection, healing where there is disease, trust where there is fear, love where there is disdain, caring where there is indifference, provision where there is lack, and bind our hearts together with all of our siblings all over the world in unity with yours. Out of many, make us one, as you are three in one. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Grace and peace. Have an amazing week. Love each other. Take care of each other. God bless you all. Thank you.